Hey, welcome back. This is Robert Fleming, one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And this is Elder Law Issues, our regular weekly podcast. When I say our, in this particular case, I'm talking about mine and my law partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. I pause and say law partner, Elizabeth, uh, just to, to be completely clear, although in a pretty large segment of the community, you are known as my daughter. Turns out it's not true. <laughs> we do spend quite a bit of time together, Robert. Uh, and today we're going to talk about um, a, a variant of special needs planning. We do a lot of planning for people with special needs, people who have diagnoses of, of uh, disabling conditions, who may be getting government benefits. But there's a kind of a variant that we see a lot of, Elizabeth, and I, and I wanted to talk about them and see if you can offer any suggestions to particularly parents. What about the child who still lives at home, who isn't really disabled, but who has never been able to focus enough to complete college and get a degree and get to work? Or maybe they actually did go to college and, and pretty often I think we see cases where they did extremely well in college, but they just can't hold a job. They can't interact with other people. They don't have a diagnosis, but there's sort of a, and, and I'm, I'm hesitant to use the phrase, but in our office we often refer to them as the failure to launch kids. Do you see those as well? I do, Robert, and I would start by saying this is a super judgment-free zone. When we talk to people about kids, spouses, parents, friends, neighbors, and people come in and in May sheepishly talk to us a little bit about their concern for someone like a child who struggles to maintain regular employment or who is in and out of relationships routinely or who may like to spend lots and lots of money at Target but then when it comes time to file a tax return is not even sure what a 1099 is. This is a judgment-free zone. Everybody has challenges in different ways. And so when I see people come in and start these conversations, there's often a lot of shame, particularly when I speak to somebody who may be a parent. They've paid for their child's education. Their child's an attractive adult who makes wonderful dinners and loves to go on trips and is very helpful to her parents and may, in fact, be a fantastic gardener and loves to paint. But something, uh, someone, somewhere along the way in adulthood, that kind of independence just never really came into play. And so parents continue to offer really active support in the form of monetary support and, of course, emotional support. That happens all the time. Sometimes I see a variation too, Robert, where parents will end up purchasing a home for that child and maybe that child's spouse and children. So it may be that parents continue to support in really major ways. Um, sometimes I feel almost to to kind of overstate um, how many resources are available to help when they're really actually missing the point that the child may need a longer-term plan to provide support as a parent ages. So we see those people and we talk to them routinely, Robert, sometimes the question of, is it a bad thing that I'm on my child's checking account or actually my child is on my checking account? Or what do you think about me opening up an investment account, a second investment account and adding 
my daughter on it so that she can start to learn how to manage money? Do you get those kinds of specific questions? I do. And and I sort of a related uh, point, I frequently hear from people who say, yeah, my son lives at, at the family home where he's lived his entire life. His brother and his sister went off. They're professionals. They don't have a lot to do with him. They think he's just not trying very hard. But I know he's trying as hard as he can. He graduated from college. And by the way, when I do my trust, I think he should be the trustee. And I say, wait a minute. Why should he be the trustee? Well, he's here. He knows everything about my assets. He's super smart. Yeah, but he can't get his act together to get his his car insurance updated. He's the wrong guy to manage your trust. He's not going to handle the accountings well. And to your point, Elizabeth, uh, it's that's the same reason, same collection of reasons why you don't want him as a joint owner on your checking account or your brokerage account. If he needs to learn how to manage money, he needs to do that in an account that he's solely responsible for that doesn't have your future tied up in it. Uh, and I, like you, I see people who think, oh, this will be the thing that that changes him, that, that teaches him an important skill. Um, yeah, maybe not, and there's potential disaster in the wings. And I think things become more complicated too, Robert, once you have a spouse and children, your grandchildren involved. And in some of these cases, I see people trying to set up plans in real time to provide care for a child. That's the long-term plan. So mom or dad will say, hey, I'm doing this now, so she is all set up when I die. That is also, I think, a real fallacy that you can set someone up during your lifetime to manage things once you die in a way that he or she will be able to continue living independently. So it, these are sensitive topics, Robert, and sometimes we'll have a case manager join us at Fleming and Curdy. We've got four wonderful case managers. Sometimes we'll have somebody who's got real expertise in the social work arena um, join us for a conversation, do a little listening. Other times, you know, what ends up happening is we'll have a meeting, we'll send people away with some questions, and maybe we'll do a follow-up meeting, and, and people have had a little bit more time, I think, to think about the questions. And what we don't want people to feel is defensive, that we're making recommendations because we don't think that your daughter's a wonderful person or that we're making recommendations because, you know, we don't trust your sister. No, actually, we're just trying to ask these questions to prompt some thinking about what's really realistic when we create expectations. I will say that the idea of sharing an interest in real estate comes up a lot. So I went ahead and made the down payment so my daughter and her husband could buy a house and I really want to make sure that their names are on the deed and um, they are helping make mortgage payments but the mortgage is in my name. These are all the kinds of things that we see people deal with routinely and it's okay. You're not in trouble. (laughs) It doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It just means that we really need to talk about what this looks like down the road and and, um, think about it in a thoughtful way. One of the things that you really need to address in those circumstances is what about the other kids? Are you planning on having that house that you bought or the money that you've been spending to support your your one child? Are those going to come out of that child's share with air quotes around the word share uh, of, of your estate? Because of course you can do whatever you want. You can leave it all to that child. You can disinherit that child. You can leave it all to your favorite charity. You can do whatever you want, including 
favoring that child, but do it intentionally. Do you intend to give them a house plus a third of everything else? Do you intend to give your other two children anything to make up for the fact that you've spent thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, taking care of the child who, who really hasn't been able to take care of themselves? Um, don't, again, judgment-free. We don't care what your answer is, but don't let the question go unanswered because your children, all of them, the child who's been receiving support and the other children deserve to understand clearly what they should expect. And I think, Robert, the the other bigger picture discussion oftentimes is that it is a process when we talk about estate planning. It is a process of discussions. It is not a scenario which it's kind of plug and play where we have one meeting and these topics come up and then we sit down at our computers and use a program and generate your trust or the trust for the benefit of your daughter in five minutes. In fact, these are actually some of the discussions that make estate planning really process-oriented. And so I'll, I'll meet with people. We might start a conversation talking a little bit about their circumstances right now. I may see that they've got powers of attorney that are getting kind of old. Maybe they created their powers of attorney and their last estate plan update was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Those are the folks that as we get into these types of topics, I say, you know, maybe we should go ahead and just update your powers of attorney right away because those are important, critical documents if there were to be an accident for you tomorrow. In the meantime, let's schedule a follow-up appointment so we can talk a little bit more specifically once you've had time to to marinate on these questions about your daughter or your son. So there are ways to help people move their planning agendas forward, get documents in play, maybe have them sign their powers of attorney while we're discussing the rest of the estate planning update. But I hate to push the process on these more important discussions because then what happens, Robert, is people can create complexities administratively that become a real albatross on their estate either in their lifetime or on their death. Or they end up speeding ahead, they don't want to address it today, and then we see them again in nine months, and these same questions come up then. And it leaves people unsettled to not have really adequately addressed the, the real, real family dynamics. There's no better illustration, Elizabeth, than this area for the premise that we don't sell documents. You can buy documents online. You can buy software that will generate documents. What we sell is the consultation, the, the question and answer process, the interview that, that we do to try to give you some peace of mind that you've done the best you can to plan for your succession to adequately and fairly treat your children or, or whomever you're planning on leaving your estate to. That got heavier than I really expected it to as we went along. but uh, but. A, a good chat, and I'm happy to talk about the difficulty of dealing with the, the actual family dynamics that we actually see among our clients. And Robert, can I also just make a, a note here that sometimes this comes up when we actually talk about someone's spouse who may be sitting right there in the room with us and we're talking about estate planning, and we'll see that one spouse who's the primary asset manager, money manager, kind of organizer, will sheepishly look at us and maybe look at her spouse and say, I, I love my husband so much, but you know, he really 
honey, do you do you know how much our mortgage payment is every month? Mm-hmm. So also, I just want to have people remember that actually this happens pretty routinely with spouses too, and it's okay. We can figure it out. The good news for us is that we like having these conversations with people. That's kind of why we get up and come to work every day. We, in that sentence, are Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm. In another context, we are Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman and Robert Fleming, two of the partners at Fleming and Curdy. And in a third, we are Elder Law Issues, the weekly podcast of Fleming and Curdy PLC. We hope to hear from you. No, we hope to you hear from us next week. Thanks. <laughs>